Welcome to the Governance Voice Podcast, your source for news, trends, and challenges in the world of corporate governance. Governance Professionals of Canada is a member organization that promotes and supports the role of governance professionals across Canada. We provide valuable information on recent changes and developments that affect governance professionals, their boards, and their organizations. Each month, we dedicate a podcast episode to a key governance-related topic. We hope you enjoy the podcast. So welcome to our new episode of the Governance Voice. As you know, at GPC, we are continuing to research and explore trending and pressing governance topics to equip governance professionals to support, guide, and influence their boards and organizations. So in today's episode, I am really delighted to have Sarah Keyes, who is CEO of ESG Global Advisors, an organization that works on bridging the gap between companies and investors on material, environmental, social, and governance factors that drive long-term value, including climate change. And Sarah is a climate change expert. She has over a decade of work experience as a thought leader, consultant, and auditor. Prior to joining ESG Global Advisors, um, Sarah was a principal at CPA Canada, where she produced research, thought leadership, and guidance for companies to integrate climate change considerations into business strategy, risk management, governance, and reporting. I met Sarah back in 2018 when I invited her to deliver a keynote address at our annual conference in Victoria, which was titled Climate Change, the Next Frontier for Corporate Governance. And fast forward to now, August 2021, and what she shared in that presentation never rang truer as it does today. Just this week, a new report came out of the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, sounding the alarm on the dire climate crisis at hand. And we can see it unfold as heat waves and other climate events develop more frequently than ever. And we can all agree that it brings this issue to a head now more than ever, and it needs to be on the minds of all businesses and their leaders, not just high emitters. Climate change is a systemic risk with the ability to impact nearly every sector of the global economy. What is also really key for businesses is to understand how mainstream investors, lenders, insurers, rating agencies, and regulators are seeking enhanced climate-related information. And back in 2018, Sarah stated that less than one-third of companies made specific disclosure of board or senior management oversight of climate-related issues. I asked her before recording this session if the dial had moved at all since, and it appears that it has not done so noticeably. At GPC, we want to explore this topic further as governance professionals have an opportunity to demonstrate leadership by proactively contributing to global best practices through supporting their boards and organizations. So this podcast will provide an overview of relevant trends and developments related to climate change and discuss the implications for corporate governance professionals and their boards. We will discuss what climate looks like based on the type of organization, sector, tangible examples of how it can impact circumstances on a micro and macro level. We'll look at what risks are organizations facing specifically and what challenges and targets need to be considered what these challenges actually present for boards, senior management, and the distinction with the roles that they should each be playing and how the governance professional can fill the gap between the two. So Sarah, without further ado, let's dive in as we have so many things to discuss and we're really eager to hear your insights. So my first question really is, is climate governance has been a hot topic for a number of years, but in the past 12 to 24 months, the conversation has really accelerated in the corporate boardroom. What has prompted this shift? So thanks so much for having me on the podcast today. I'm delighted to be here and following up on our discussion from that keynote address in 2018. And indeed, we have seen an incredible acceleration 
in terms of attention to the issue of climate change within corporate boardrooms. And I suspect that governance professionals across the country are starting to grapple with this issue and how they most effectively play that role in liaising between senior management teams and the board. So I would say that the COVID-19 pandemic has really put a spotlight on the interconnections between the economy, our society, and the environment. A recognition that COVID-19, of course, being a human health issue, a societal issue that had significant ramifications for the global economy as we had to shut down all sorts of businesses, limit travel uh, to try and contain the virus. And I think what it's done is it's really highlighted the real financial risks of intangible issues that require global collective action to mitigate and address. And what I mean by that is no country could address the COVID-19 pandemic alone. What we've seen is both companies and investors seeing the parallels between the COVID-19 pandemic and the impacts on our economy and overall financial stability with climate change. And this being another big global issue that requires collective action, it's intangible, and it's a lot of unpredictability and uncertainty. We're going into new territory, very similar to how we've had to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic. So it's given us a bit of a moment to pause and reflect. And a lot of conversations we've seen are around this notion of building back better? Do we want to go back to the environment and society and economy that we were in pre-pandemic? Many have said the old way of doing things is no longer socially acceptable. We've all had a lot more time at home to be thinking about issues like climate change and broader environmental, social, and governance issues. And so we see more attention now being placed by broader society on environmental and social issues, but with this growing focus on the climate crisis. And as you noted, Lynn, the landmark report coming out of the IPCC just this week really illustrated the urgency and the scale of change required in order to address climate change. In fact, we've really only got less than 20 years to keep global warming below that 1.5 degree threshold. And just for our listeners, you know, I think the temperature degrees get thrown around a ton. What it really translates into for you as the governance professional is that once we go past that 1.5 degrees, the level of uncertainty with respect to catastrophic climate change increases significantly. So we really want to limit it to 1.5 degrees so that we can actually wrap our arms around these risks, understand, mitigate, and adapt. So it's systemic, it's global, and it's not only an issue for high-emitting sectors, as you said. I think it's really important just to note here for all of your listeners, you you might be sitting as a governance professional supporting organizations in industries that are not high-emitting. Maybe they're not in the natural resources sectors. Maybe you're in technology-based or services-based solutions. Uh, you know, I think it's really important to also recognize the impacts of the physical risks of climate change coming in the form of extreme weather events. And the IPCC report really highlighted the spike. And I think certainly, you know, from a Canadian perspective, we have started to see the impacts of a really long and severe wildfire season that started in Canada. And we've seen the impacts on people and organizations in terms of their ability uh, to adapt to this growing frequency and severity of extreme weather. Lytton, BC would be your best example here, where we've seen record-breaking temperatures causing wildfires, but also significant health consequences. And that means a lot for services companies who maybe their talent isn't able to get to and from work or able to actively engage with work because of health-related issues. Yeah, it paints a very dire picture, doesn't it? Everyone does need to understand the impacts and how they can be a part of the solution. So, and it's also often difficult to understand in practical terms how climate change does impact their strategy, risk management, and performance. 
So maybe you could provide some examples of how climate change could impact the governance of companies operating in different sectors, for example. Absolutely. So I'll start with some of the traditional sectors, and then we'll kind of move into some examples of maybe some of those we don't traditionally think would be impacted by climate change. So of course, oil and gas companies have been on the forefront of this. Obviously, in a fossil fuel-based economy, a lot of attention on reducing greenhouse gas emissions from our energy system. So we definitely see very big macro business model impacts due to a transition away from fossil fuels when we think about what are the material climate-related risks for an oil and gas company. Now, on the flip side of risk is always opportunity. So you'll hear me consistently giving examples of how a risk could be turned into an opportunity. And in the case of oil and gas, we see a, a great push toward diversification. So a good example would be what BP is doing, obviously one of the largest integrated oil and gas companies in the world. Their CEO said, uh, we cannot continue to produce products in a world that society doesn't want. And so they are now diversifying themselves into an integrated energy company by investing in renewables and starting to think about some of the energy systems of the future while continuing to work on their core business, which still has a demand and need being oil and gas. When we start to move into other sectors, thinking about mining, for example, this is a really interesting sector to me. Obviously, we do see a lot of energy and water consumption in mining operations, very much so dependent on natural resources. But there are an incredible number of opportunities for mining companies as we think about the increasing demand for precious metals. And the reason we're going to see an increasing demand is as we try to transition away from fossil fuel-based transportation, for example, we're going to need more and more of these precious metals for electric vehicles, for the batteries that are required to power the new vehicles of the future. These are things like lithium and copper that are expected to grow in demand. So we see a lot of mining companies addressing this dual challenge of needing to be more resource efficient and reduce their energy consumption and be thoughtful about where they're getting their energy from. So we see a lot of mining companies deciding, for example, to do on-site renewables to help power their operations and get themselves off of diesel fuel. But we also see tons of mining companies seeing the opportunity for increased demand for these metals and actually thinking about this in the context of M&A, so actually trying to diversify the metals that they mine. But moving into some of the less traditional sectors, I think mining and oil and gas always are top of mind when we think about climate change. But there is such a growing focus in real estate. Now, this one's super interesting to me. Buildings not only are a huge emitter and huge consumption of energy, of course, that is important when we think about energy efficiency and greenhouse gas emissions associated with buildings. But if you think about really high value real estate, a lot of us want to be on the coast, for example. And so now we're starting to see the growing impacts of the physical risks, the need to adapt to build resilience. These are the types of strategic risks that real estate companies are thinking about. And it's not just those who are, for example, like the fair of the world who have hotel chains all along coastal real estate. It's also those that invest in real estate. So income trusts, REITs, they're increasingly thinking about their climate related risks in their portfolios and what companies need to do in order to address things like coastal erosion and extreme weather so that they don't have things like service interruptions or damages to their real assets. So real estate is a growing focus in the climate change space. But I also want to switch gears and talk about another important sector to Canada's economy being agriculture. We see both 
opportunities and challenges associated with climate change for the Canadian agriculture sector. And what's really interesting is our agriculture sector is really built of a lot of small-scale farmers, family-owned businesses. These are the backbone of Canada's economy. We see a huge threat coming from extreme weather. One can imagine that a big drought or a significant flood can result in crop failures. And in many cases, crops are on an annual basis. A loss of a significant crop has an immediate and material impact on agriculture companies' revenues. And that is a huge challenge that we see companies addressing. The flip side of this is an increased growing season. There are some predictions that in Canada, we could become the breadbasket of the world as California starts to experience more and more drought. Canada is actually one of the few countries in the world that's expected to have an increased growing season and potentially higher crop yields as the world warms. And last but not least, we also see an incredible opportunity for agriculture to help generate carbon offsets. So sequestering carbon in soil through enhanced practices is another opportunity for agriculture companies. As we think about putting a price on carbon and we think about the idea of using offsets, there's going to be a great demand from hard to abate sectors like oil and gas and industrials like cement and steel to purchase some of these offsets from agriculture producers. So that could actually be an opportunity for a new revenue stream. I want to touch on retail because I think supply chain is something that's top of mind for all of us when we think about COVID-19. Retail and fashion, fast fashion in particular, has been under the gun when we think about the greenhouse gas emissions associated with producing textiles. Now, this is often outside of our borders, but companies are increasingly being asked to take accountability and responsibility for their supply chain emissions, meaning their scope three. And this could be significant for retail organizations. It could have all sorts of consequences in terms of of, uh, the costs of abating greenhouse gas emissions all the way down to those suppliers. So if you think about, let's say, a luxury goods company that uses a lot of leather, when I say supply chain, I'm talking all the way down to the farmers who are raising the cattle that are used for that leather and thinking about the methane emissions coming from those cattle. So data is going to be a challenge here. And we also see the impacts of physical climate risks for the retail sector. So you've got a global supply chain. Maybe you need cotton coming from India. India faces drought, you can see the connection immediately in terms of price volatility and the ability to actually access some of these raw materials, the need to diversify their supply chains and identify new sources of raw materials where we may see more and more disruptions due to extreme weather events. And last but not least, I want to talk about those that finance it. This might be the biggest opportunity, uh, the biggest growing area that we see. So why are all the big banks starting to set these climate change goals? Why are all the big banks starting to set sustainable finance commitments? Simply because they're lending to all the institutions I just mentioned. And so they are now increasingly being held accountable by their shareholders to say, what are you financing? And how are you being thoughtful about the impacts of climate change, not only on the risk of that financing in terms of their ability to repay that debt if some of these climate-related risks and opportunities were to manifest. But also, what does it mean for the global transition? Where are you putting your money and which industries are you backing and supporting? So there's incredible reputational risks facing banks nowadays in terms of the industries they're actually supporting through their lending practices. We now interrupt this podcast to let you know that if you ever wanted to expand your knowledge and grow as a governance professional, our Governance Professionals of Canada certification program, the GPC.D, has become the standard for governance professionals in Canada. This unique program was created by governance professionals for governance professionals and equips you with the needed perspective, insights, and concepts to take your organization and board to new governance heights. 
It is made up of three courses which can each be taken separately. Foundations of Governance, Applied Governance, and Strategic Governance. And together they will set you apart with the only Canadian Governance designation. Register now at gpcanada.org forward slash gpc hyphen ep. That's gpcanada.org forward slash gpc hyphen ep. Sharpen your skills today. Goodness. <laughs> that is a quite thorough review. Thank you, Sarah. To what extent are these sectors recognizing the risk that they face? I think that this is not necessarily an analysis that everyone has come to, to full realization about. Is there, from your vantage point, are you seeing a recognition of these risks from these different sectors? Yeah, I think that I would suggest that most of those who are on the forefront of this are the ones that have been under scrutiny for longer. So I would say natural resource-based companies. high emitters, yeah. Absolutely. What we're starting to see now is a broader recognition that we cannot only focus on the high emitters when we want to address global climate change. And so we're starting to see an awakening to the fact that climate-related risks and opportunities are indeed material. They are real. They're core to business strategy, risk, and governance. But it's early days. And it's early days in North America. A lot of them are just starting out. And in terms of kind of for your listeners who might be working in some of these industries that are not in the high emitters, some of the examples that I gave, I would suggest the first place to start is really to assess the materiality of climate related risks and opportunities. And that's going to be dependent on your sector. It's going to be dependent on where you operate. And it's going to be dependent on your core business model and strategy. Where do you see the organization going? And how might climate change help or hinder the achievement of those goals? Which sectors would you say have made the most progress to date? And are there examples out there that companies who are just getting started should be looking to for guidance and benchmarking? Absolutely. So I think it's important to always have an aspirational peer that you look at when you do benchmarking mm -hmm. and recognize that it's a journey of progress, not perfection. So I often, when I'm working with my clients, peer benchmarking is a big part of how we uh, assess materiality of climate-related risks and opportunities. But I'm always cautioning them, let's put in the best-in-class leader, but especially if you're a small or medium enterprise with far fewer resources than some of these large global companies, always remembering that you need to walk before you run. And that your shareholders are completely empathetic to that as well. They recognize that you're not going to have the same level of resources. So a few examples, I think oil and gas, we've seen some of the energy super majors leading the way, BP, Shell, absolutely on the forefront. When we think about mining, I feel that mining companies are really starting to wake up to this. We work with an incredible number of mining companies who are just getting their arms around this notion of ESG. One of the really interesting things with mining, and I would suspect it applies to a lot of other industries, is you're probably doing a whole lot already that's core to your business, core to your social license to operate. You just probably haven't termed it climate. You probably right. haven't identified it as ESG. So things like extreme weather have always been important for mining companies, but it's about thinking about where are we today and recognizing that the historical performance is not necessarily reflective of the future. But when we think about some of these other companies, you know, agriculture, retail, agriculture, I love talking about what Nutrien is doing in Canada, an incredible leader when it comes to all things ESG. What Nutrien is doing from an agriculture standpoint, they're actually working directly with the farmers and they say, okay, let's help you with a carbon management program. Let's help you with some of the tools, education, and resources that you need to reduce carbon in your operations. So that's a really great example 
of a Canadian leader. On the retail side, I would say Unilever is always the favorite global example. They're a very purpose-driven company. Paul Pullman, their former CEO, a global leader in sustainability and a fantastic speaker as well. But Unilever's got a benefit of advantage, many years of experience. So always important to think about that uh, if you are a small retailer looking for best practice. But last but not least, I've been incredibly impressed with the rapid focus on climate and climate finance by our financial institutions. All of our large Canadian banks have formal sustainable finance commitments. They are keen to deploy capital in a way that is going to facilitate the transition to a low carbon economy while also protecting some of the most important sectors for Canada. So take a look at what TD is doing, RBC, Scotiabank, BMO, they all have these big targets set. They're enhancing their disclosure and they're really taking a walk before they run approach and collaborating. So I think no one has all of the answers yet. They're still trying to figure it out, but I see a lot of great examples of Canadian leaders that we can look to. Thank you very much, Sarah. I think that uh, it's going to be very useful to our listeners. Let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, we hear a lot of companies and investors committing to the net zero by 2050. And Canada has enacted legislation to achieve this goal at a national level. Globally, if I'm not mistaken, almost 200 countries have committed to net zero by 2050. So can you tell us a little bit more about net zero and what does this mean in practical terms for boards and governance professionals? Right. Great question. A big question. So let's first say, okay, what is net zero? Because I think a lot of the time we're throwing around the term and we don't even necessarily have a clear understanding what it means. So I really want to emphasize the word net in net zero. So it's not absolute zero emissions by 2050, but the net is reflective of the fact that we either need to offset the remaining emissions or sequester them. So there are a couple of different technologies that we use to get there, but the net is just to note that it's really about the balancing of the emissions going into the atmosphere and those that are able to be sequestered. So you get to that net zero by 2050. The reason it's important and the reason it's our North Star is net zero by 2050 is the pathway to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees right? We have the 1.5 degrees as the Paris Agreement goal. Net zero by 2050 is what we need to do to get there, to limit it to 1.5, to manage these risks, to avoid this runaway catastrophic climate change that we can no longer mitigate and manage. So that's kind of point number one. That's what we mean when we say net zero. But we've got so many companies now jumping on this, and I will call it a bandwagon. Net zero by 2050, they're setting the target, but many of them are lacking a credible implementation plan to get there. Now, There's lots of different schools of thought. Do you set a target first, then come up with an implementation plan? Or do you wait until you have a plan to announce a target? I would suggest that setting the target is that North Star. So I think it's important to do so. Setting a goal for yourself allows you to create a plan to get there. So it is essential from your expectations of capital providers, your stakeholders, and your board wants to be able to answer the question, you set net zero by 2050, What does this mean in practical terms? And how do you know you're on track? I think that's the biggest question. You know, 2050, we're talking about a 30-year time horizon today. So what does a board need to do to understand if their organization is on track? Because when we think about a 30-year time horizon, none of the members of the senior management team or the board who are there today setting the target will necessarily be in those seats as of that date. When we think about a credible implementation plan, having that North Star of 2050 net zero is fantastic. But what investors and capital providers, lenders, insurers are really focused on is, okay, you've set that goal. What are the interim targets you're going to achieve to show us you're on track to get there? 
So again, it's about progress, not perfection. So we know that it's really important to line up. Here are the interim targets. Here are you know our 2030 goals or 2035 goals. Five-year timeframe is typically viewed as uh, best practice and preferred. So the implementation plan should also include how you expect to allocate resources to achieve it. So if you're in a heavy CapEx environment where you have very long-lived assets, you're going to need to be able to explain how you're going to transition those long-lived assets through your capital expenditure planning to reduce those emissions over time and achieve your targets. But when we think about the role of the board, they're responsible for long-term value creation. So one of the things I really want to emphasize here is that climate change should not be thought of in a silo. It shouldn't be treated separately from any other business risk. It is fundamentally something that should be integrated into board's oversight of strategy and risk management. There should be interim targets to illustrate progress, but importantly, we should be disclosing our progress on these. So the board also needs to be confident in understanding the rigor that management has put around these interim targets and the rigor around their reporting to ensure that the data you're putting forward into uh, your stakeholders and out into the public domain is accurate, reliable, and meets all the same assertions as any other financial information that the board would oversee and approve. So I think that's a super important component. And so basically, in a nutshell, have a plan and make sure that you have a goal set, but also cook it into your strategy and ensure that, you know, you're embedding climate and governance transition in existing risk processes, executive compensation, scenario analysis, and everything else that might go hand in hand with that. Yeah, I mean, what gets measured gets managed. So measurement is step one, you know, take a baseline on your greenhouse gas emissions, understand where you're at. I think many Canadian organizations are just at that stage. So it's important to kind of crawl before you walk and then walk before you run. So taking a baseline is definitely step number one. Okay, what are we emitting today? And then getting a sense of, okay, if we want to get to net zero by 2050, what would that really entail? How would we know if we're on track for that? I think those are the strategic discussions that management teams are having. And in terms of the distinction between the role of management and the role of the board and how the governance professional can play that critical role here. Management should be coming up with this plan. It's management who should be identifying and assessing their climate-related risks and opportunities and putting it in front of the board for their review and input, right? For the board to validate that, be a sounding board, and challenge it as necessary because this is new territory. But the governance professional plays this essential role in the middle, helping to ensure a flow of information at the right time, at the right level to the board. Now, this is not an easy task. I work with a number of governance professionals in trying to strike this right balance. And I do want to note, it really depends on the dynamics that are already existing in the boardroom. So I think sometimes the board wants to be actively engaged. If you have a board that's really bought into this and interested in being involved, maybe you include them in a workshop to identify your material climate-related risks and opportunities. Whereas maybe if the board is more deferential to management, wants to see management coming up with a pretty robust plan and wants to have something to react to, then maybe you kind of do this workshopping with management and bring that information up to the board at the appropriate time. So governance professionals have to apply a lot of judgment and can bring that knowledge of the existing culture and relationship between management and the board to actually moving the dial on climate. Because I will say one of the biggest challenges is positioning, right? This is an entirely kind of new territory. 
Very few corporate directors would say they are experts on climate. Very few management teams would say the same. So the governance professional has that opportunity to strike that right balance and help right-size it for their organization and their culture. And so what are some of the considerations that the board should be thinking about in terms of what does it translate into practical terms? How do you embed this in practical terms in your strategy, in your executive compensation? What are some of the things that you're seeing happen that are actually moving the dial on not just setting a goal, but, you know, putting in some metrics along the way and perhaps even some interim targets? Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So really, there are two key ways that we see boards seeking to ensure that this is embedded, right? And ultimately, it is up to management to do the embedding, but it's really important to satisfy the board that you've done it thoughtfully and that they understand how it's embedded because otherwise they're not going to be able to effectively oversee it. So the first thing that we see a lot of boards doing, particularly in relation to net zero, is asking management to conduct a climate change scenario analysis exercise. Now, this is challenging. It's a forward-looking set of scenarios to test business resilience and potential financial results under different climate conditions. The data is still developing to do this on a robust quantitative level. And we see a lot of collaborations happening on a global scale with companies trying to work with others in their sector to come up with robust methodologies that are suitable to the unique circumstances of the industries in which they operate. So when we talk about scenario analysis, this is an opportunity for the board to oversee how management is evaluating how the business will actually address their material climate-related risks and opportunities under different scenarios. So if we actually hit net zero by 2050, what does our business look like in that future world? What about if we blow right past it? What about if we actually end up in three to four degrees of warming? What would our business look like then? And as you can imagine, those risk profiles will be quite different. And what your business actually looks like will be quite significantly different. So the board needs to get comfortable with the assumption right? No one has a crystal ball. So what's really important is that management is able to defend and credibly identify their assumptions, why they've selected certain scenarios, what are the key assumptions that are underpinning those scenarios, and ultimately, why did they not select other scenarios? I think this is really important because there are so many scenarios out there. So the governance professional has this very challenging job of trying to translate a very robust exercise that would be done by the management team into something digestible for the board to understand. And so we see back and forth a lot around scenario analysis because it's not quite fully developed. So companies start qualitative. My advice to you is start qualitative. The value of this is simple. It's just simply to get folks thinking about the fact that the world might look significantly different by 2050. So what does it really look like? What does it mean? It's going to spur some really important conversations at the board level and give you a sense of the level of ambition of the company. So the whole purpose of scenario analysis, in my view, is to get the board to validate and provide input to management around what does our company want to do in response to these different scenarios. So getting a sense of just how do we want to mitigate this risk? So if this were to happen, what would we do? And so it's really an if and conversation because no one has that crystal ball. We now interrupt this podcast to share with you that as a professional organization, Governance Professionals of Canada puts governance professionals first with education, professional development, networking, critical resources, advocacy, and strategic partnerships tailored to your unique needs. It's never too late to enhance your skills and to find your tribe. 
So invest in your future by joining Governance Professionals of Canada today. For more information, visit gpcanada.org forward slash join. That's gpcanada.org forward slash join. And join us at GPC. Right. That's, I mean, obviously it's a very tedious exercise for boards to undertake. So they, they certainly have to embark on a long-term journey and not seeing it as a short-term investment really is to your point, they're not going to be on the board in 2050. So what does that look like for the future of the organization? Yeah. Let's now maybe switch gears a little bit and also talk about how mainstream investors, lenders, insurers, rating agencies, regulators are seeking enhanced climate related information and what does that mean for organizations in terms of what are some of the reporting frameworks and how are they going through that kind of minefield because there's quite a few different uh, protocols from what I understand. This is one of the, I think, one of the biggest challenges for organizations is sifting through the range of different reporting frameworks that are out there. So to date, because we haven't had uh, mandatory requirements around climate change disclosure, a whole bunch of voluntary frameworks have popped up over the years to try and fill this information gap. And so we are chatting at a really interesting time. I think we're on the precipice of seeing a real change here. Um, So we've got all sorts of standards that have been out there for a long time. Things like the Global Reporting Initiative, which are used by most of the S&P 500 for their sustainability reports. But they tend to address a whole broad range of stakeholders. They're thinking about materiality in a bit of a broader perspective, thinking about information that might be of interest to communities, governments, and a whole variety of broader stakeholders. But when we think about this more narrow audience of investors, capital market participants, you know, lenders, insurers, financial regulators, they remain laser focused on financial materiality. So, and when I say financial materiality, I'm using that same definition that we think of for financial reporting. Any information that would reasonably change an investor's decision to buy, hold, or sell the security. And so materiality is really, could this actually impact our business in a way that would be significant? And if so, we should be disclosing a risk around this and a mitigation plan on how we want to address it. So the leading and gold star framework for all climate change disclosure is the task force on climate related financial disclosure. So TCFD, it's probably an acronym that your listeners have started to hear more and more about. Very briefly, the reason the TCFD has emerged as this voluntary gold standard framework is because it uses that definition of financial materiality. And it was actually developed by uh, a task force created by the G20's Financial Stability Board. The concern was around global financial stability challenges due to unpriced climate-related risks in the capital markets. And so investors don't have the information in order to price the risk. And so as a result, they're starting to push companies to voluntarily provide it. What's unique and interesting about the TCFD framework is that it also applies to investors. So we've seen an incredible amount of support for it, but of course, they're actually going to have to report against it. So what that means is they're now pressuring the companies that they hold in their portfolios to provide this disclosure to them so that they can report on it at an overall portfolio level. So that is definitely one of the big pushes that we see for the voluntary disclosure against TCFD is that companies are getting more and more requests from their investors to address this request for disclosure. 
And what I think is really, really interesting now and important for your listeners to pay attention to is the fact that North American regulators are considering making this mandatory. And we have, you know, the TCFD came out in 2017. So it's been a few years. We've seen more and more uptake of the recommendations. And I will note for your listeners, uh, one of the recommendations is on governance. It's about how management is identifying, assessing, and mitigating their material climate-related risks and opportunities, and how the board is overseeing it. So these are process-related recommendations. We see a lot of companies starting to increase their disclosure on their governance policies and processes for overseeing climate, but we still have a long way to go. So we've seen the Securities Exchange Commission in the U.S., Under the new Biden administration, a complete 180. They put out a public consultation on climate-related disclosure. And what they found, this just this year in 2021, that three quarters of the investors that responded to this consultation supported mandatory climate change disclosure. Voluntary is not cutting it. And what we've seen in Canada is an endorsement um, from the federal government of the TCFD framework. They're starting to make it a requirement for all provincial and federal crown corporations to report against TCFD. And so what we're starting to see is some of the leading companies voluntarily adopting it. Most of them saying they're voluntarily adopting it because they know it's going to become mandatory. And for your listeners on a global scale, it is already going to become mandatory in the United Kingdom as well as in New Zealand. So I think the writing is on the wall. And and the chair of the SEC said just last week that he will be issuing a rule by the end of the year for mandatory disclosure. And we expect all of this to align with the TCFD. Wow. And didn't Freeland invite them to come and hang out in Canada? I think the latest, I think this was yesterday in the news, offering them a permanent home here. Right. So, you know, as an accountant and as someone who worked at CPA Canada before, I can honestly tell you that the accounting profession is essential to making this happen. And so when we think about, you know, international financial reporting standards, the IFRS, They only recently, and this is exactly what you're just noting, Lynn, established an International Sustainability Standards Board. So they've received the calls from everyone on a global scale saying we really need some consistent and comparable standards. They issued a consultation and received overwhelming support to establish a new sustainability standards board. And now they're trying to find a home for it. And Canada has put in a bid to say we would like to house the ISSB in our country and their first priority focus is going to be on climate-related disclosure. And they've already said they're going to look to align with the existing frameworks and specifically noted the TCFD as well. A lot happening right now. And let's bring that back again and and focus. So, you know, our listeners are governance professionals, some are board members, but I think we want to try and understand from a process standpoint, you know, beyond proactive risk management, how can governance professionals help their boards and management teams take an approach that positions the company to thrive in the low carbon climate resilient future? What are some of the key elements that they can put forward and sustain and manage as governance professionals sort of mitigating that space between the board and management? Absolutely. So I think you know, forward-looking governance professionals have a huge opportunity to ignite innovative discussions about the company's strategy when we look in the context of climate change. So most corporate directors have now been hearing about the issue of climate change, but if they haven't yet raised it at a board meeting, governance professionals have a huge opportunity to put this on the agenda. Get a conversation started. It's as simple as that in terms of actually carving out a bit of time to say, is this something we should be focusing on? What's the view of the board with respect to the issue of climate change? And 
how does the board see our organization addressing it? The other thing that I've seen a ton of is on board education days. We often see the governance professional actively identifying what are some of the key emerging topics in the governance world that we want to put in front of our board and make sure they're up to speed on. I think that is perhaps one of the most powerful things that can be done to ignite this conversation is just helping the board to understand how it fits within the context of their existing fiduciary duty and how it ties in. So I think the governance professional is in a very unique circumstance because they have this opportunity to play that translator role and do the reading themselves. I think a lot of governance professionals in this podcast would be a good example, are really trying to educate themselves on some of the latest governance trends and make sure they're up to speed so that they can bring their boards along with them. So a huge opportunity is really, you know, taking some of this knowledge about the trends, putting it on the agenda to have a conversation, but also putting it on the board education day. I do a ton of presentations just helping boards wrap their head around what is climate change and why does it matter to me? That makes sense. So if an organization is not even out of the gate yet, you know, get some education, put it in front of the board, put it on the agenda, start taking advice perhaps from third parties, look at management, have those conversations. And on a macro level, we know what's going on. On a micro level and looking at the organization, I mean, there are so many challenges that they face putting this into place. What are some of the biggest challenges for boards and governance professionals when it comes to getting out of the gate? So I I think, first of all, is getting the conversation started. So I think the governance professional, if your organization has not started yet, that's definitely number one. So putting it on the agenda is huge. Um, I think the second thing is really appreciating that it's challenging to know where to start right? Um, It's like an overwhelming topic. What does this mean for us? So once, uh, you know, I think once the board is up to speed and understands that climate change is an issue that intersects with their oversight of strategy and risk, like organization needs to figure out, okay, but what are the specific climate-related risks and opportunities that are most material to us as an organization? And those are going to be different across short, medium, and long-term. So I call this a climate change materiality assessment. And one of the best things I think that boards and governance professionals can do is utilize the TCFD framework. So what TCFD has done is actually define the universe, if you will, of climate-related risks and opportunities. So they've got transition risks, which are all related to the transition to a net zero by 2050. And then there are physical risks associated with the increasing frequency and severity of extreme weather and overall global average temperature rise. But they've also defined some really interesting opportunities, things like resource efficiency, new markets, new products and services. So using the TCFD framework and actually assessing the risks in the context of your unique organization. So thinking about, okay, what does this mean not only for our sector, but where we operate? Are there any laws and regulations that are moving toward addressing some of these risks and opportunities? Policy and legal is often a big risk for companies that are operating in jurisdictions where they're putting in place new requirements to reduce emissions. So doing a bit of a mapping of the climate-related risks and opportunities and trying to assess their materiality is a critical starting point because that's going to help you focus your resources. We can't undertake everything all at once. To have a strategy means to really focus on those top priorities risks and opportunities and actually integrating them. But one of the biggest challenges here is that when we look at traditional enterprise risk methodologies, they don't fit really nicely with the issue of climate change. And there's actually 
kind of three big reasons for that. The first one is that we don't have a ton of data on climate. So historical data, not that useful for the forward-looking assessment of climate-related risks and opportunities. We're kind of entering into a whole new realm here. So that's a bit challenging. So that's where I often make the crystal ball reference because the old data, we love using old data to predict the future for most risks. And in this case, it just doesn't fit. Now, the second thing is that it's difficult to quantify. So even if you kind of identify a forward-looking risk and say, yeah, you know, we are in a high emitting sector, so any increased policy or legal requirements around reducing emissions could be material for us. But if we don't quite know how much it might cost, or we don't quite know how much our emissions might be in the future, it's kind of difficult to quantify it. So That's another challenging one. It doesn't really fit within the traditional thresholds of materiality where a lot of enterprise risk frameworks will have quantitative thresholds. You know, anything over a million dollars we care about, anything under we don't. So it doesn't really fit there. So these are some of the challenges that we start to see when we try to do a materiality assessment is getting comfortable with the ambiguity and the lack of hard and fast data, which is challenging for boards. And that's why I say one of the best things we can do is helping them understand the underlying assumptions and having them test the credibility and accuracy of those. And what about reputational impacts? What are some of those employee attraction, retention, productivity, customer preferences? What are some of the things that you're seeing out there in terms of reputational risk vis-a-vis addressing or not addressing or not stepping up for climate risk management? Yeah, it's a critical question because increasingly the reputational impacts are becoming financially material. And so we saw quite the proxy season this year. We saw ExxonMobil having a surprise upset from a small activist investor who actually booted and managed to get new directors on the board related to climate change specifically. So we've actually started to see some serious governance consequences of not addressing some of these reputational risks over time. Beyond the investors, I think increasingly we see millennials and younger generations seeking to work with organizations that align with their values. And so if you think about some of my opening remarks, the COVID-19 pandemic has really put a spotlight on this. In fact, it was really interesting as a Uh, the federal government was putting together its 2021 budget, they surveyed Canadians and said, what are the most important topics to be top of mind for our budget? And in the top two was addressing climate change and the low carbon transition. So public opinion has shifted. So this is no longer just kind of something in the niche where only, you know, as they say, the tree huggers care about. It's become pretty mainstream that people are quite concerned with climate. So now they're choosing to align and work for companies that actually align with their values. I have heard from a number of oil and gas companies that they're having a very hard time attracting young talent that's skilled for their workforce, which is essential to their long-term value creation because there is an aversion to working for a fossil fuel-based company. So those companies are actually increasingly needing to up their game on climate so that they have an answer in those job interviews for what they're doing and how they're going to be contributing to solving this problem as opposed to being part of that problem. Well, the other thing is we're not just voting with where we want to work. We're voting with our dollars. So consumer preferences, we're seeing a huge amount of demand from younger generations and a willingness to pay a premium for more sustainably produced products. So there's also opportunities there uh, in terms of your revenue. The audio in this podcast is brought to you by Impact AV Solutions, building valuable partnerships and customized event designs for each of their clients. They utilize their technical and creative expertise to deliver the flawless execution of each event, making each one an unforgettable experience. Impact AV Solutions is based out of the GTA and is able to service events across Canada. 
For more information on their services, please visit impactavsolutions.com. So Sarah, what practical tips or takeaways could you offer our listeners on this topic, specifically vis-a-vis the role that governance professionals can play to enable their organizations in climate governance? Absolutely. So a few kind of practical things that governance professionals can use to get started. So first of all, you really are the hub between management and the board, and you can support the establishment of effective governance practices to oversee climate-related risks and opportunities. So conducting a gap analysis against best practice guidance for board oversight can help you to identify ways that you can enhance your policies, procedures, and structure of your governance function to effectively oversee climate-related risk and opportunity. The other thing that I think governance professionals have a huge opportunity to do is help ensure that their boards understand their role in dealing with these matters and prioritizing it, as I said earlier, as separate board agenda item, having a dedicated conversation on the topic of climate change. There should also be some mechanisms to ensure awareness. We've talked about so many fast-moving concepts and trends today. So ensuring that both the board and management are kept up to speed on the potential impacts of climate change, but also the regulatory developments that are really going to inform their decision-making and the pace and scale of change required. And last but not least, I think it's really important to recognize that governance professionals have an opportunity to ensure climate competence. So many of your board members, your senior management teams will have all sorts of skills and experience that are relevant to this topic. And it's really about helping them understand through internal education. This might be having a subject matter expert come in and present to your board, having a lunch and learn with your management team, or even offering readings, interesting topics and reports where there's guidance for your board or management just getting that conversation started and ensuring it stays on the agenda because this is an issue that's not going away. So it's not a one and done. So I think governance professionals have that opportunity to ensure that it's a recurring topic of discussion and that it's always considered in each of the conversations where it's relevant. Definitely. Thank you. That's very helpful. It's quite a minefield. And I think it's so necessary in the conversations that we're having are very, very timely and very important. And I think we could speak for hours on this. We're running out of time. So perhaps the last point is that I think regardless of the issue, one of the best strategies to start the journey for change is education. You know, finding ways to educate boards and governance professionals on the risks, challenges and opportunities and where, you know, where we can find some useful insights. I mean, for one, I do want to point out that GPC offers an annual conference on ESG, focusing on the governance and on the role of boards and the governance professionals. You know, our last event was in September 2020. We're still still have the event recording, which we'll, we'll link to the podcast page. We'll link some other resources that you've mentioned, the TCFE framework and so and other links that will be very useful to our listeners. But where else can our members or their boards find education opportunities on climate change and resources to get them started onto their journey. Absolutely. So there's no shortage of free resources out there. That's the good news. Now it's about finding the ones that are most useful and specific to the role, right? So just a few thoughts on where to look. So obviously, Governance Professionals of Canada has been a leader on this. We also know that the Institute for Corporate Directors is doing a whole lot more. So they're obviously the institute that certifies corporate directors in Canada. And there's two areas that we see them working on. So for those of you who might be considering going through that program or interested in becoming a corporate director in the future, the program that the ICD has with Rotman uh, now includes an ESG and sustainable finance module within the corporate program. 
And so that is now something they're starting to integrate and that does have quite a focus on climate. And then for those who already have the designation or maybe sit on boards of directors, the ICD is also a member of the World Economic Forum's Climate Governance Initiative. They've just launched what they call Chapter Zero in Canada, and they're actually going to be producing a whole suite of courses and modules for corporate directors on the topic of climate governance. So there'll be a fundamentals course, a deep dive on strategy, a deep dive on risk, and a deep dive on disclosure and reporting. So stay tuned for those courses. But in terms of the actual practical tools and resources that are out there, Chapter Zero through the World Economic Forum has a whole bunch of readiness assessments that you can use to work with your board, a bit of a checklist of what are the best practices for establishing effective governance practices to oversee climate-related risks and opportunities. So you could actually take that checklist and work internally with yourself or directly with your board to say, okay, where do we see some gaps between us and best practice here? There's also some amazing resources coming out of the Canadian Climate and Law Initiative, the CCLI. They've got a number of resources for corporate directors and fiduciaries to help explain the link between climate and the role of the board and senior management. So these are all critical tools. The Charter of Professional Accountants of Canada also has a number of resources, checklists, and questions for boards to ask about climate change. So there's certainly no shortage out there, but it is an overwhelming amount of information. So really trying to hone in on those practical tools that allow you to assess gaps between your current practices and your best practices. One of my absolute favorites, if you're a company that is high emitting sector, you expect to get more and more questions about what you're doing on net zero. Take a look at the Climate Action 100 plus net zero company benchmark. That's basically a list of the 10 topics that investors who are really focused on understanding how companies they're investing in are addressing net zero. It'll give you a really good roadmap uh, for what they're going to expect in the future and hopefully proactively set your board up for success so that they are able to answer those questions when they do come if they haven't already. Fantastic. And we'll get all of these links from you, Sarah, so we can post them. And I want to add also that GBC has its own certification program for governance professionals, three modules where we do go into CSR, sustainability, and ESG in the role of the board. And the purpose is to equip governance professionals to ensure boards have effective practices in sustainability oversight. And we touch on best practices in environmental, social, and governance practices. So those, again, really important education opportunities. We have our annual conference coming up next week, where we have a number of sessions addressed these topics and again at a high level but great touch points for those that are looking for information and current trends so I think those are all really good places to start and to have them on your radar so I mean given the urgency of climate change issues it's it is so essential that business leaders set a strong tone at the top on climate change and boards and governance professionals are knowledgeable and actively engaged in creating a strategy or starting to create that strategy to address climate risk well Thank you so much, Sarah, for speaking with us today. It was a pleasure sitting down with you to chat. And we'd like to thank our listeners for their support of the podcast. We hope that you've learned a lot from this episode. I sure have. And if you're enjoying this podcast, feel free to follow and like and share our episodes. So also, if you need to get more information about Sarah and climate governance, again, I mentioned we will have more information on the show notes of our episodes. So, and to learn more about Governance Professionals of Canada and what we do to support the governance professional please visit our website at gpcanada.org. So thank you again, Sarah. Thank you to our listeners and we look forward to our next episode. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. This podcast was brought to you by Governance Professionals of Canada or GPC, your voice for governance professionals nationwide. 
our mission is to influence and promote leading governance practices, be a catalyst for establishing the highest standards in Canadian corporate governance, and to promote the recognition and success of Canadian governance professionals. For more information on GPC and what we do, please visit gpcanada.org. That's gpcanada.org. Tune in next time for our take on the latest in corporate governance. Governance Professionals of Canada is providing this podcast as a public service and an informative resource on issues in governance. Our content is not intended as a legal representation nor a formal statement of GPC's policy, opinion, or recommendations. Any reference to specific products, services, or entities does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by GPC. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of their views or of any entity they represent. GPC does not take responsibility for content produced outside of our organization. If you have any questions about this disclaimer, please contact our organization at info at gpcanada.org. That's info at gpcanada.org.